The Reading Wave Podcast, Episode 6. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Reading Way podcast. This is David again, hoping to introduce you to some terrific reading projects. And I hope you like the new music that introduced the programme today, including the mistakes I made trying to play it. Now let's move in to the first piece. There is a line in William Shakespeare's Will that is often used against him or to disparage him as a person or even as a man. And the line goes like this. Item. I give unto my wife my second best bed. This poem called Anne Hathaway by Caroline Duffy should go a long way to explaining Shakespeare's actions. And it's read here by Madeline McMahon. The bed we loved in was a spinning wheel of forests, castles, torchlight, clifftops, seas where he would dive for pearls. My lover's words were shooting stars which fell to earth as kisses on these lips. My body, now a softer rhyme to his now echo assonance, his touch a verb dancing in the centre of a noun. Some nights I dreamed he'd written me, the bed a page beneath his writer's hands, Romance and drama played by touch, by scent, by taste. In the other bed, the best, our guests dozed on, dribbling their prose. My living, laughing love. I hold him in the casket of my widow's head as he held me upon that next best bed. For the next extract, I will be reading from Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. The original story was first published in 1968, but it's given rise to film adaptations such as Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049 and Blade Runner Blackout on 2022. And it's thanks to Robert Palmer, who's a Reading Wave podcast follower for suggesting this particular story which reminds me that if you want an extract read out on the podcast please contact us on Twitter at readingwave1 or on email at thereadingwavepodcast at gmail.com and so to the extract I will be reading from the opening pages of chapter 2. In a giant, empty, decaying building which had once housed thousands, a single TV set hawked its wares to an uninhabited room. Their ownerless ruin had, before World War Terminus, been tended and maintained. Here, had been the suburbs of San Francisco, 
a short ride by monorail, rapid transit. The entire peninsula had chattered like a bird tree with life and opinions and complaints. And now the watchful owners had either died or migrated to a colony world. Mostly the former. It had been a costly war, despite the valiant predictions of the Pentagon and its smug scientific vassal, the Rand Corporation, which had in fact existed not far from this spot. Like the apartment owners, the corporation had departed, evidently for good. No one missed it. In addition, no one today remembered why the war had come about, or who, if anyone, had won. The dust, which had contaminated most of the planet's surface, had originated in no country, and no one, even the wartime enemy, had planned on it. First, strangely, the owls had died. At the time, it had seemed almost funny, the fat, fluffy white birds lying here and there in yards and on streets. Coming out no earlier than twilight, as they had while alive, the owls escaped notice. Medieval plagues had manifested themselves in a similar way, in the form of many dead rats. This plague, however, had descended from above. After the owls, of course, the other birds followed, but by then the mystery had been grasped and understood. A meagre colonisation programme had been underway before the war, but now that the sun had ceased to shine on Earth, the colonisation entered an entirely new phase. In connection with this, a weapon of war, the synthetic freedom fighter, had been modified. Able to function on an alien world, the humanoid robot, strictly speaking the organic android, had become the mobile donkey engine of the colonisation programme. Under UN law, each emigrant automatically received possession of an android subtype of his choice, and by 1990, the variety of subtypes had passed all understanding in the manner of American automobiles of the 1960s. That had been the ultimate incentive of emigration. The android servant as carrot, the radioactive fallout as stick. The UN had made it easy to emigrate, difficult if not impossible to stay. Loitering on earth potentially meant finding oneself abruptly classed as biologically unacceptable, a menace to the pristine heredity of the race. Once pegged as special, a citizen, even if accepting sterilisation, dropped out of history. He ceased, in effect, to be part of mankind. And yet, persons here and there declined to, to migrate. That, even to those involved, constituted a perplexing irrationality. Logically, every regular should have emigrated already. Perhaps, deformed as it was, Earth remained familiar to be clung to, or possibly the non-emigrants imagined that the tent of dust would deplete itself finally. In any case, thousands of individuals remained, 
most of them constellated in urban areas where they could physically see one another, take heart at their mutual presence. Those appeared to be the relatively sane ones and, in dubious addition to them, occasional peculiar entities remained in the virtually abandoned suburbs. John Isadora being yammered at by the television set in his living room as he shaved in the bathroom was one of these. Thanks very much to Robert for that suggestion. Next up, Andy McLeod is going to read a piece for us from Metamorphosis by Franz Kafka. Of course, the story is about the transformation of an individual and the impact on those around him. In this case, it is a very extreme transformation and the original publication of the novella was in 1915. But I'm sure this story resonates down the years to have complete relevance in our time too. Over to Andy McLeod. When Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from troubled dreams, he found himself changed into a monstrous cockroach in his bed. He lay on his tough, armoured back and, raising his head a little, managed to see, sectioned off by little crescent-shaped ridges into segments, the expanse of his arched brown belly, atop which the coverlet perched, forever on the point of slipping off entirely. His numerous legs pathetically frail by contrast to the rest of him, waved feebly before his eyes. What's the matter with me? He thought. It was no dream. There, quietly between the four familiar walls, was his room. A normal human room, if always a little on the small side. Over the table, on which an array of cloth samples was spread out, Samza was a travelling salesman, hung the picture he'd only recently clipped from a magazine and set in an attractive gilt frame. It was a picture of a lady in a fur hat and stole, sitting bolt upright, holding in the direction of an onlooker a heavy fur muff into which he had thrust the whole of her forearm. From there, Gregor's gaze directed itself towards the window and the drab weather outside. Raindrops could be heard plinking against the tin window ledges. Made him quite melancholy. What if I went back to sleep for a while and forgot all about this nonsense? He thought. But that proved quite impossible. Because he was accustomed to sleeping on his right side and in his present state he was unable to find that position. However vigorously he flung himself to his right, he kept rocking onto his back. He must have tried it a hundred times, closing his eyes so as not to have to watch his wriggling legs, and only stopped when he felt a slight, slight ache in his side, which he didn't recall having felt before. Oh, my Lord, he thought. If only I didn't have to follow such an exhausting profession. On the road, day in, day out. The work is 
so much more strenuous than it would be in head office. And then there's the additional ordeal of travelling, worries about train connections, the irregular bad meals, new people all the time, no continuity, no affection. Devil, take it! He felt a light itch at the top of his belly. I slid a little closer to the bedpost so as to be able to raise his head a little more effectively. Found the itchy place, which was covered with a sprinkling of white dots, the significance of which he was unable to interpret. I saved the place with one of his legs, but hurriedly withdrew it, because the touch caused him to shudder involuntarily. He slipped back to his previous position. All oh, this getting up early, he thought, is bound to take its effect. A man needs proper bed rest. Thanks to Andy McLeod. And straight on to the next reading. Chapter 1 Patience. 45 minutes northeast of Cambridge is a landscape I've come to love very much indeed. It's where wet fen gives way to parched sand. It's a land of twisted pine trees, burned out cars, shotgun peppered road signs, and US Air Force bases. There are ghosts here. Houses crumble inside numbered blocks of pine forestry. There are spaces built for air-delivered nukes inside grassy tumuli behind 12-foot fences, tattoo parlours and US Air Force golf courses. Spring, it's a riot of noise. Constant plane traffic, gas guns over pea fields, woodlarks and jet engines. It's called the Brecklands the broken lands and it's where I ended up that morning seven years ago in early spring on a trip that I hadn't planned at all. At five in the morning I'd been staring at a square of street lights on the ceiling listening to a couple of late party leavers chatting on the pavement outside. I felt odd, overtired, overwrought, unpleasantly like my brain had been removed from my skull, stuffed with something like microwaved aluminium foil, dinted, charred and shorting with sparks. <sighs> I must get out, I thought, throwing back the covers. Out! I pulled on jeans, boots and a jumper, scalded my mouth with burned coffee and it was only when my frozen ancient Volkswagen and I were halfway down the, a the A14 that I worked out where I was going and why. Out there, beyond the foggy windscreen and white lines, was the forest. The broken forest. That's where I was headed. To see goshawks. I'm sure you wondered, why didn't he introduce that piece before he read it? Well, here's the introduction. It's from a book called Hitches for Hawk by Helen MacDonald. The reason I didn't introduce it was because this is the only non-fiction piece in this episode and indeed in a lot of other episodes that we've, we've had for the Reading Wave. It was the winner 
of the Samuel Johnson Prize for non nonfiction in 2014. Nonfiction books can be entertaining. Please don't ignore them. This book doesn't just detail parts of nature, isn't just about birds, and doesn't just detail Helen MacDonald's relationship with one particular goshawk. It's also about part of her life that was extremely difficult for her and how all of this helped her get through it. It's well worth a read. And finally, to end on a lighter note, from Oscar Wilde's An Ideal Husband, this exchange between Lord Goring and his butler Phipps. Lord Goring. Extraordinary thing about the lower classes in England. They are always losing their relations. Phipps. Yes, my lord. They are extremely fortunate in that respect. And that's the end of episode six of the Reading Wave podcast. Thanks once again to... Andy McLeod and to Maddie McMahon for their wonderful contributions and thanks also to Robert Palmer for suggesting Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. It's now September 2020 and unfortunately I've still got to say stay safe, stay sane until the next time. Goodbye.